legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Carol Nervig who joins us to discuss her book The Petroglyphs of Mu, Pompeii, Nan Madol and the legacy of Lemuria. Myths and legends from around the world tell of a lost ancient civilization swept away by a major catastrophe during prehistoric times. The people or peoples dimly remembered are often said to have been technologically advanced, culturally sophisticated and capable of amazing feats that the scientists and engineers of our age still cannot comprehend. The fate of both Lemuria and Atlantis represent perhaps the best known telling of such tales. Biblical stories such as those of the fall of man and Noah and the ark, the latter also reflected in the many other flood myths, echo suppressed species memories of some ancient cataclysm which may have brought humanity to the brink of extinction. Other cosmologies paint a very different picture from mainstream accounts of human antiquity and evolution, including our origins amongst the stars, or perhaps even other dimensions of space-time. As we collectively face an increasingly uncertain future, what might the past have to teach us about the people that we were, that we are, and that we could be? Hello and welcome, Carol. Thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you, Greg. I am delighted to be here. Love sharing about my book. So looking forward to it. Yes, well, we're going to be talking about that very book today and and related subjects. The book is entitled The Petroglyphs of Mu, Pompeii, Nan Madol, and the Legacy of Lemuria. Uh, Before we jump into that, if you could give listeners just a little bit of information about your background and your work in general. Well, my relationship with Pompeii Namadal and, uh, began in, in 1969. I was assigned to Pompeii Island during, in the Peace Corps. And with, I was, uh, my, I was teaching English as a second language in a tiny one, two room schoolhouse about three miles from Namadal. So that's when I was first exposed to that site. And, uh, at that time, I was shocked that, you know, the world didn't really know much about, not, didn't even know it existed. So I uh, took it upon myself during the summer when school was out to interview uh, the Pompeian elders about the oral histories of the site and produced a little uh, a booklet at that time. Uh, the first non-academic, I mean, there were some uh, papers, but nothing for general consumption. So that's how it started. And then uh, after my Peace Corps service, I came back again in, in early 19, in 1990 to uh, help create a, a nonprofit for the preservation and protection of Namadal. And uh, that was 
quite a quite a move. And it was at that time when I came across this this uh, burned off field that was covered with megaliths, which were covered with petroglyphs. And it was adjacent to a known petroglyph site. And, and this really got me, well, this uh, triggered years of research and eventually to this book, trying to to uh, document and explain what this site was for and the petroglyphs and the uh, meaning in the context of the uh, a world of other sites, similar sites. So tell us about places on the globe here, uh, because it's certainly not a part of the world I'm very familiar with, never been anywhere near there, but even in terms of, of not just your specific research, but just general history, it's a, a region that I know very little about. So for, for those of us who don't know, if you could just yeah spin the globe for us and just tell us the, the region that we're talking about. Certainly. Uh, Micronesia is in the... <clears throat> The far western, northwestern Pacific, and it, uh, the island of Pohnpei is within, uh, the Federated States of Micronesia, which there are four states, Koshrai, Pohnpei, Yap, and Chuk, and, uh, other parts of, uh, Micronesia are the, uh, Republic of Palau, the Commonwealth of the Marianas Islands, and the Republic of Marshall Islands. And these are all fairly new political delineations after World War II. Um, and the uh, Micronesia culturally is one of three, Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia are three areas of the of Pacific Island cultures and islands. And, uh, Polynesia, meaning many islands. Melanesia, meaning islands with uh, inhabitants with dark skin. And Micronesia, meaning tiny islands. Uh, Micronesia, I think it's a little bit over 2,000 islands uh, <clears throat> are included in Micronesia, geographical Micronesia. And uh, most of them are tiny atolls. And so the the... The majority of Micronesia is just water, just the ocean. To place it, many are familiar with Guam. Guam is uh, geographically part of Micronesia, not politically. And Pohnpei Island is about two and a half hour flight southwest of Guam. Okay, so you mentioned that you'd uh, you'd written a little bit earlier, you know, but, you know, before your book came together about this region. What as someone who's very interested indeed in megalithic culture and uh, prehistoric uh, human history, this was new on my radar, and I, I wasn't surprised to learn of there being you know this sort of evidence uh, really anywhere in the world wouldn't surprise me. It does seem to be uh, you know a truly global phenomenon. But this it just the, any work done in this area, yours was the first I come I've come across. Are you the first person to publish anything anything substantial on this? You know, why do you think that? I mean, because I've spoken with many uh, megalithic experts, and, and this particular region has never come up. Maybe because they were just focused on on better known parts of the world. I'm not sure. Well, the site of Nan Madal, which is the city 
refer you know it's often referred to as the Venice of the Pacific. It has uh, over about a hundred artificial islets, and that site has recently got world heritage status, I believe, in 2016. And so that's become that's on the radar now of uh, you know some some people interested in these ancient megalithic sites. However, you know there are still a lot of mysteries around it. So you know when people don't have answers, they sometimes uh, skip over it. Or uh, and it's so remote and so expensive. It's difficult to get there and expensive to get there. So. However, the petroglyph site, which is approximately three, four miles uh, as the crow flies from the well-known Namadal, uh, that site has been the portion of that. So this is what's kind of confusing about Ponpade. There are, I would describe it as two parts to that site. One is this enormous basalt natural outcrop and that's covered with petroglyphs. And people and Pompeians in general have known about that for a long, long time. And and they have been, most of those petroglyphs have been documented. However, when I came across the this burned meadow uh, adjacent to the known site, none of these none of these were none of the petroglyphs were documented at that time. And uh, with a very few exceptions, most are still not documented. And the reason being that this site with the megaliths and boulders in the meadow is has been covered with, you know, rainforest jungle. Pompeii gets receives about 400 and some inches of rain a year. So it was just this fluke that they were, there was a drought. And the kids just for fun, you know, lit matches and burned the field because they could. And the result of that was seeing all these megaliths that no one even knew were there. I mean, rocks and megaliths, you know, that's not that unusual, but the fact they're covered with petroglyphs is. So did you find out about this? I say it's amazing that this was uncovered more or less by accident, but did you find out about this and then travel to view it, uh, to photograph, to document it, or were you already there and then you suddenly discovered that this was a this was a thing that this area had been exposed? Well, I was already there, and uh, I was, like I said, I <clears throat> I was uh, the director of the Namadal Foundation at that time, and there were some visiting consultants from the Australian National University there, and. I did a presentation for them about Namadal, and later we were all having dinner. And uh, one of the consultants, I believe he's a geologist, he started asking me about petroglyphs. And I said, well, yeah, there's some. I mean, referring to the ones on the well-known ones on the outcrop. And he asked me lots of questions, and I didn't think they were particularly remarkable but I was no expert at the time about petroglyphs. Anyway, he kept bugging me. Will you please take me? I want to see it. And so, okay, you rent an air conditioned car and I'll go. So when we arrived to see the known site, 
this uh, the drought and the burning of the meadow had taken place. So we got to the fork in the road and it's like, oh my God. So we went immediately to this new burned off area and came across all these petroglyphs. That was the first time uh, I'd ever seen them. And most everyone on the I mean, the historic preservation officer at the time had never, I took him to the, the site and showed him. And uh, the families knew there were stones with writing on, but they didn't, I mean, nobody, they had no explanations for what the site was used for, nor the meanings of the glyphs. So I then I concluded, well, this is older than the known oral histories and present culture. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. That, that puts the, the local population, um, even in terms of their own history and folklore, you know, at a kind of a loss in the same way that, that many of us are in other parts of the world with sites of similar antiquity. And let's not forget that these things are sometimes very conservatively dated as Graham Hancock keeps pointing out in his blog posts, stuff just keeps getting older. You know, they keep rolling back the dating of these things uh, as time goes on. So what does or what did local history and historians, you know, in terms of um, whether archaeology or whether folklore or mythology have to say about any of this, or was it kind of just, we don't know? Well, the only uh, oral histories surrounding these the petroglyph site and again, I'm referring to the old part of the site because the meadow was, people didn't realize it was there, or at least now they don't. Um, so one was the uh, oral history or legend about the creation of the, the petroglyph site, the outcrop site. And that was uh, two brothers or magicians, uh, shamans, whatever, from a ne- the neighboring district stole a blanket and they took the blanket to this this site whether they walk or flew or you know there are varying versions and they placed the blanket on the ground there and thus creating uh i mean a blanket might have patterns or designs on it so i'm assuming this the, the legend is their way of explaining petroglyphs. And the interesting part was after they laid the blanket down on this, you know, where this outcrop is, there was a uh, doorway in the, in the rock. And after they laid it down, the two of them exited through this doorway, never to return again. So uh, this hints of portals... <laughs> Or interdimensional travel. Yes, well, that's something that um, I'll raise again later, and maybe you can speculate more mm-hmm. about that. I know I sent you, I mean, this is not a new idea uh, as far as I'm concerned, but mm-hmm. the, this comes up again and again, this idea, uh, you know, we're thinking about the function of these sites or the particular qualities or quirks of these sites, you know, just that, that which sets them apart from the everyday, you know, the almost supernatural or paranormal um, accounts of events at such sites. I mean, there, there, are, there are many. And certainly mm-hmm. the idea of portals, again, we, we can we can talk about later. Because I did send you um, an article that I, I'd written based on an interview with Thomas Sheridan about this. And it was an idea that, that he was playing around with as well. One of the, the first things here, we were talking about 
antediluvian civilization, you know, like sort of pre-flood uh, civilization. And, and most of my listeners, I think, will be familiar with the idea of the biblical flood, not that uh, not talking about the veracity or otherwise of people, places, and events in the Bible, but there's, we have flood myths around the world, and clearly sea levels rise and fall, particularly over geologic periods of time. There are megalithic sites currently underwater that we know about, and uh, sea level was certainly a lot lower, for example, um, during the last ice age, at least when a lot of the water was tied up in <clears throat> in the vast ice fields covering a great deal of the Northern Hemisphere. But when you mentioned uh, the figure of 2,000 um, small islands, you know some of them just tiny atolls, and when we think about um, other better-known sites, for example, such as Easter Island, these archipelagos, uh, these outcrops, and you can even look at um, parts of Northern Europe, even the British Isles in this context, again and again around the world, there seems to be these tiny outcrops of land and discoveries there, archaeological finds, uh, prehistoric finds, megalithic sites, the scale of which seems to kind of belie the, the, the tiny size of their their location. But of course, what this is simply telling us is that we should be looking at much lower sea levels, uh, potentially, probably, highly likely at the time that these sites were, you know, were being constructed, were, were uh, in their original use. Oh, precisely, precisely. And of course, these Pacific islands, you know, the mountaintops of the, the, the lands that were once there. And, uh, and specifically regarding that, uh, the, the Pompeian legends are, and in the South Pacific cultures, oral history is their highest art form or one of the highest, I should say. I mean, they don't, they memorize generation after generation. They know their ancestors and they memorize these oral histories and it's an art form. And so uh, they're uh, to not take that seriously is a significant error. I think, you know, when you're looking at prehistory in the Pacific. So, uh, and in regard to that, the uh, Pompeian legends are very clear that Namadal was built. Uh, <clears throat> these uh, two brothers, twin brothers, maybe giants, came from the outside. They climbed this pyramidal peak. They tried different sites around the island for their uh, religious, ceremonial, and administrative center. And None of them work, and they kept going. They climbed this pyramidal-shaped peak on Namadal, I mean, Madaladine Bay, looking for a site, and they saw the city of the ancients under the water. Well, so that's why they built Namadal, where it was, as a memorial uh, to the the city of the, the shining city under the water. So... It's, they're very clear that they're <laughs> about uh, why Namadal was built where it was built. And I, my feeling is that <clears throat> the petroglyph site, Namadal is on the on sea level, on the water. And this petroglyph site is up higher uh, <clears throat> inland, not, not, on the, not on the highest peaks, but it's significantly higher. And so... I believe that 
there's a relationship with the petroglyph site to the underwater city. And again, it might, depending on the migrations before and after the deluge catastrophes, uh, it could have either been contemporary with that uh, city under the water, because often mountaintops are sacred places for shamans and rituals and connection with the divine. So it could have been uh, contemporary or like Namadal and but earlier than Namadal, a a memorial also to that city or marking that place. Because all three places, uh, you know, they would be attracted there because it because of that area being a portal. So um in in my opinion. Well one thing that comes up again and again is this idea that something that was uh, certainly when I learned about um, ancient history or, you know, the history of the, of, of the human race and the planet beyond the point when actually we can really say many concrete things about it, because just, you know, things get so hazy, certainly back to the mm-hmm. last ice age beyond that, we, we just can't really, but I would initially have been educated to reject the idea of any global travel you know, in the ancient past, but it comes up again and again, this idea of an advanced, relatively advanced uh, seafaring culture around the world. And there'd be a lot more global travel than perhaps would have been accepted. For example, if you look at uh, relatively modern history, the idea of uh, Columbus discovering America, that's, we know that's not the case. Vikings were in, in North America prior to that, but you start to rewind, you go start to go back thousands of years and there's this suggestive evidence um, of global seafaring culture doesn't mean that it was one culture necessarily may have been may may not but when we start to see common symbols and similar styles of building and just traits that repeat again and again it's suggestive of either the hundredth monkey syndrome where you know people think of the same things at the same time it's, you know nothing's unique in the world or maybe the symbolism, you know, for example, symbolism that's derived from uh, astronomical observations. Maybe that could be, but could be repeated globally, you know, without global communication. But it's all suggestive in the ancient past that there was, you know, a network, there was communication, and this would be more easily, despite what I said about seafaring, this would be more easily facilitated at a time when the sea level was lower and there was more travel possible um, across land again at the time when a lot of these sites were constructed i suppose so i guess the nub of what i'm saying is that this linear idea that we go back to the stone age and our hunter-gatherer ancestors were living in caves and scratching around and um you know had no technology beyond flint or a stone axe or something this isn't borne out but with the uh, archaeological evidence well for sure for sure, and the uh, uh, the distances one would have to travel if you're going via water, of course, and especially if there are large land masses that are no longer there, made made it much easier. Uh, and even today, the uh, the 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 Pacific Islanders are known for their navigational skills, especially in Micronesia. And they, you know, they can cross the Pacific with the stars and they proved it. And recently, 
So they, whether it was uh, in some kind of a traditional ship or canoe or whether it was some kind of advanced technology, you know, air travel of some sort, uh, it, there, there are a lot of possibilities. And I'm, I'm always, uh, and it's just not one, like you say, not one linear movement or time frame or, you know, we've got all these the different uh, uh, cultures spanning the globe. And uh, yeah, uh, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> what I guess what I find the most interesting and I know some about indigenous cultures of the Pacific and maybe not so much about the rest of the world, but the little I do know, there are so many basic similarities between the indigenous of the world. <clears throat> and of course, <clears throat> the main commonality is their reverence to the land, the earth, mother nature. So I don't know if you've um, talking about Graham Hancock and stuff just keeps getting older. Are you familiar with the work of Michael Cremo? Well, yes, I am. And he was one of the first. In fact, I saw years ago, I saw his lecture at Port Townsend, Washington. And uh, yes, and he, you know, certainly played a value, valuable role because he professionally documents these, these sites and situations. And, uh, and again, he was one of the first. Well, one of the main things to derive from his work, for example, Forbidden Archaeology and, and some of the ideas in his book, Human Devolution, that I think would help, if, if considered uh, as a new framework, would, would help make more sense out of some of the evidence that you and others are, are looking at, some of the evidence that suggestive, suggestive of a much different timeline. And that essentially is that there have been anatomically modern humans that is to say humans recognizably like you and me been on the earth for much much longer than is conventionally allowed for now michael gets into timelines of maybe millions of years i don't know about that i don't know enough about it to say but certainly anatomically modern humans intelligence on a level on a par with our own for much longer than than uh, conventional history and archaeology suggests well yes i i certainly uh, i would agree with that for sure and it's a little bit mind-boggling when you you know how old some of the evidence is and you know i'm i'm uh again that's certainly not my field and i'm no expert in that but i uh i have no doubt there were there were civilizations that uh go beyond the the current acceptable time frames and they uh in particular particularly in the pacific i mean the pacific islanders they like the hawaiians and the maoris and they all speak of their lost lands their lost motherland their lost homeland and in fact some refer to the that being mu literally so it's like that all is sort of ignored i mean again it's difficult to prove because most development if there's water involved it's it's around the shores and and if that's gone but uh i think 
it would be uh, a good idea to pay a little bit more attention to some of these uh, oral histories as uh, there's uh, there's some pretty um, well in fact in the 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 Mu or the Menahunis, the little people of Hawaii, they were in the mid 1800s, they were listed on the census in the white Hawaii census records. So, you know, that's, uh, it sounds a bit far fetched, but, um, you know, there's actually physical evidence if one, you know, should investigate. Okay. So you mentioned Mu there, uh, um, which is like two letters of the word Lemuria. We're talking here about, again, anti-diluvian civilization, speculated about, uh, we include Atlantis in this. Um, of course, this is all written off by mainstream history and archaeology as a pseudoscience, pseudo-history. But clearly what we're looking at, call it what you like. Lemuria is just a name, Atlantis is just a name, but th- th- there are names that represent something which is this the evidence, increasing evidence for some kind of advanced civilization in the distant past. And we have the evidence we have for it at the very least it are the megalithic sites. You know, how were these things created? I mean, even the Great Pyramid, we go to Egypt here and we look at these things. There are theories that have been advanced about their construction. Uh, some people are convinced by those. Others have shot holes in these theories that, saying it couldn't possibly have been done that way. But perhaps at this point, we should say a word about this timeline, because uh, Lemuria is obviously in the title of your book, in whether you consider it to be myth or pseudo-history or whatever it happens to be. Uh, Lemuria is said to predate Atlantis, which predates, um, obviously, the deluge. Uh, Atlantis famously is described as being lost in a great flood. And then we begin the, the, the epochs of time that, that we know about, uh, you know, say, for example, going back to Gobekli Tepe, 10,000 BC, mm-hmm. et cetera. So just give us your, you know, any thoughts or any take you have on, on the timeline of the civilizations, because you've used Lemuria in the title of your book for a reason. Well, it's always difficult to to start <laughs> to determine timelines and dates and that sort of thing for obvious reasons. But when the, the culture of Mu uh, or Lemuria was inundated, and this is also repeated in the, the myths and oral histories of Pacific Islanders, even the Japanese. They had migrants coming from the east, from the lands that sank. So this, uh, this concept of a flood a, a catastrophe is also consistent in the Pacific. So, uh, Mu Liberia, it's, uh, that would have been in existence before this uh, this catastrophic flood or whatever happened, whether the meteors or. Uh, but it's complicated, and, and, and then there are survivors that I feel came remembered their motherland and eventually, through their legends and memories, came back and resettled these islands at a later date. But the um, the the problem is like I don't see Mu and Lemuria as just a time frame. I mean, it was more of a, a culture and a civilization, and it a specific time and place. You know, it 
went on for millennia. And uh, if there, if that was the initial matriarchy motherland, uh, after reading Churchward, and I think he has, he may not be correct about a lot of things, but he makes a good point. And I do have some evidence in my book about petroglyphs that are connected with his theories. He mentions Mu, I mean, uh, Atlantis being a colony of Mu. And so uh, there were at least some migrations to that area and how far they went. So it's all, you know, it's just not very clear cut. But the uh, describing Mu as more of a matriarchal, perhaps peaceful uh, civilization and Atlantis is perhaps more technical and aggressive and so there was uh there was a point where there was more, there was balance but um and many sites i think in europe and some in the in in certain of the latin american countries show that uh these themes they were uh also carried through to atlantis and then I mean, credit is always given to Atlantis, uh, I guess is the point I'm trying to say, where uh, sometimes it's more of a combination. Anyway, it's a very difficult topic. And uh, the uh, problem with a lot of the current uh, memories and legends of the Pacific, it's it's like it's just so old that there's that there aren't many. There's not there's not a lot of documentation of that. So remind me, Carol, you mentioned the name uh, Churchward. Uh, tell me about him. Remind me why that's significant, because I know the name, but I just can't quite remember the context. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>